This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, as we start today's program, we find ourselves in a position we possibly have never been in before, exactly. I say this because we recorded last week's program on the day of the Super Tuesday elections taking place across the U.S., and we pretty much had to go to press, as it were, before events were fully fleshed out. So as we closed off the program talking about the three-way race that was shaping up between Michael Bloomberg, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders. Well, that didn't last very long. In fact, by the time this program aired on terrestrial radio, I think it left a lot of people confused over what we were smoking. Because by then, Bloomberg had dropped out of the race, making it a two-man contest, in essence, between Biden and Sanders. So we have to talk a little bit about that on today's program and about the biggest crisis, sort of, that's hit the U.S. in a while. Of course, to run amok with our hair on fire, describing how the sky might be falling in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, we would have to ignore the fact that uh, at last count, this virus has claimed something like 3,000 lives, is it? 3,200? Again, this may change with the time you're hearing this if you're listening on terrestrial radio. But it's probably important to not lose sight of the fact that every year influenza kills an order of magnitude more people. And that's just here in the United States. So we'll try and devote some time in our second segment today to talking about uh, what's going on with this uh, new virus. But for the moment, we're probably going to have to concentrate on the old virus. The sad state of American politics in the wake of this nation electing Donald Trump back in 2016. We had all of our materials laid out pretty much to uh, to start recording the program. Mr. Miller stood by ready to push the record button, and I realized I really need to finish this piece by Andrew Morantz in The New Yorker, the March 9th issue of The New Yorker, titled Hashtag Winning, with the subheadline, Brad Parscall used social media to sway the 2016 election. He's poised to do it again. Believe you me, we need to devote some time on today's show to this particular look at what is going on in the political scene that I think really cuts to the chase. Mr. Miller informs me that it's actually Parscale. He looked it up. But you know what? That may prove to be a rather draining experience. So we need to start out, I think, a little lighter on today's program. So let's start out with some just items from the miscellaneous file. One thing I feel we do excel at on this program is the miscellaneous. So if I were to pose to you the question, what do you think Chrissy Hind, the lead singer and principal songwriter of The Pretenders, would select if she was asked to choose for The Week magazine a selection of best books? Five of the selections appeared to be, you know, solid choices. Chrissy Hind explained why it is she, she liked them. But I, of course, was drawn to her sixth choice which was a 2008 book by a James Lever titled Me, Cheetah. To quote Chrissy Hind, this surprising spoof autobiography is not only hilarious, but also tender and insightful. 
Cheetah recounts his days working with Johnny Weissmiller as Tarzan's chimpanzee sidekick, but it's more than that. He also recalls his capture from the jungle and arrival in America. I can honestly say that I laughed, I cried, and I learned a lot. We're supposing about Johnny Weissmiller, perhaps. She added, why this baby has not seen a movie screen yet is a mystery. It's another that I read and reread. So there you go. And if you had any doubts up to this point as to whether you might be listening to Fresh Air, I'm, I'm sure we've dispelled those. And I think at this point, we might do well to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the aforementioned Week magazine, it was a good week last week for woke epidemiology after the World Health Organization urged against saying that people are, quote, transmitting COVID-19, unquote, also, quote, infecting others, unquote, or, quote, spreading the virus, unquote, because that wording assigns blame. Instead, we should refer to people, quote, acquiring unquote, the virus. And it was evidently a bad week last week for Garth Brooks, or perhaps it was Garth Brooks's relations with idiot country music fans, because after Garth Brooks, country music legend, was seen wearing a Detroit Lions NFL jersey with the name Sanders on the back, he was deluged with online vitriol for wearing this jersey during a concert in Detroit, And we should note the jersey honors Detroit Lions Hall of Fame running back Barry Sanders. Some of Brooks' disappointed fans assumed he was showing support for Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be a lover Lincoln if you only had a brain. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for American xenophobia in the Donald Trump era with the news that a blind Chicago man has been denied U.S. citizenship because he is unable to read a sentence in the English language. Lucio Delgado, age 23, a Mexican immigrant, taught himself English by listening to the radio, but officials refused to provide the reading portion of his naturalization test in Braille. Yeah, apparently he can read just fine in in Braille, but not by the normal means, because he's blind! We've been unable to confirm the rumors that efforts are underway to strip Stevie Wonder of his citizenship. Anyway, back to the past week. Uh, It's been described by the San Francisco Chronicle as a good week and bad week. Bad for democratic diversity. The Chronicle noted that what was once the most representative field in history is now down to a battle between two white men in their late 70s. Perhaps you caught Bill Maher's comments on on this whole thing this week, where he pointed out that, well... That's who people voted for. And among those who they voted for on Super Tuesday, the fact that Joe Biden racked up 10 states to Bernie Sanders' four. Oh, and Michael Bloomberg's victory in American Samoa. Well, this is being reported as, you know, as really putting Biden back in the driver's seat, back in charge, back on top. But if you do the math, it seems he's only like, 
80 votes ahead in the delegate count. And due to the way the Democrats uh, awarded delegates on Super Tuesday, Bernie Sanders' significant victory in California actually earned him fewer net delegates than Biden's crushing victory over Sanders in Alabama. Bernie Sanders polls very poorly in red states that Democrats are not going to win in November. And although it seems pretty clear to everybody, the Democratic establishment is lining up to thwart Bernie's second run at getting the nomination. Well, that's pretty darn unfair. But on Bill Maher's program, they showed a clip of a Donald Trump interview on Fox News, naturally. He was asked about who he'd like to run against. I don't know what his exact wording was, but it was like, oh, yeah, Bernie'd be good, that communist. One thing I'm certain of, if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination, the Republican Party is going to paint him as a communist. Regardless of the fact that the more politically sophisticated person out there realizes that uh, Bernie is not exactly a Bolshevik. And if you take a good hard look at the comments he made recently about how things in Cuba, well, you know, Castro had a literacy program going on. Is, is that so bad? And I guess last week, Bernie credited communist China for taking more people out of extreme poverty than any country in history. Praising communist China is not going to do a great deal for Bernie in terms of separating his democratic socialism from other forms. And as admittedly right-wing uh, commentator Jonah Goldberg said about that, well, the fact is... China adopted market economy reforms only after Mao Zedong's central planning failed and an estimated 45 million died in a man-made famine. And I think that's probably true. I think that China has made these tremendous economic gains in the past 45 years. I'm not sure it's fair to say the Communist Party lifted them out of poverty. Well, there's someone who knows quite a bit about China. We, we may bring on the program in the future. Oh, and we do want to thank Wen Zhao for his appearance on last week's show. The Canadian blogger uh, takes a maverick perspective on uh, what's going on in China. We hope he will come on and speak with us again. The other Chinese source I was citing is apparently working on a book about the Chinese takeover of Tibet. In doing so, he's working with... Uh, former Radio Parallax guest Michael Parenti. And their perspective is going to be that the Chinese takeover of Tibet was was a good thing. Anyway, yours truly does not share that perspective. And I certainly hope that if Bernie Sanders became the Democratic Party's nominee, he wouldn't say anything good about that either. But I just have some doubts about old Bernie. But the way it's looking right now, the party regulars are lining up behind Joe Biden. Although we did find an item that attracted R.I. just before the California primary when it came out that numerous porn stars were standing behind Bernie Sanders. Yay. At any rate, although Kamala Harris has now joined uh, Pete Buttigieg and, Omi Klobuch- and Amy Klobuchar in endorsing Biden, Jesse Jackson has decided that he wants to throw his weight behind Bernie. And we'll see whether this will make a difference in the upcoming primaries. If Bernie does well and we head toward uh, the convention, we will see a divided Democratic Party. It will be that much more uh, subject to GOP predations, which I guess we need to talk about next. This article in The New Yorker by Andrew Morantz uh, takes a look at someone that we you've probably not heard of. By now, we've all heard a great deal about uh, Russian hacking and the actions of Roger Stone. 
And we've talked about the effect that James Comey's rather ill-timed uh, reopening of the investigation of Hillary Clinton played into the campaigns. And a big to-do, a very big to-do has been made about how Cambridge Analytica, using data from Facebook, was able to micro-target people and sway the election by knowing how to influence certain tiny slivers of the population to perhaps stay home and not vote. The great American humorist Will Rogers once said, I belong to no organized political party, to which he added, I'm a Democrat. And I got to say, reading this piece took me back to uh, a bestseller in the 1970s titled The Selling of the President in 1968, which explained how Richard Nixon, fearing that he might have lost in a squeaker in the 1960 election because he just didn't look as good on television as Jack Kennedy, decided to rectify that situation by hiring media people, advertising people, and going all out to shape his image, which he did extremely successfully. In fact, one of the main people employed in that effort by Nixon back in the 1960s was a man named Roger Ailes, who we hope, dear listener, you are familiar with by this point in time. Roger Ailes was the guy that Rupert Murdoch went to when it came to the construction of Fox News. I think it's fair to say that his position on how to report the news was not as fair and balanced as it might have been. Anyway, the New Yorker article picks up, I think, where the selling of the president in 1968 left off so many election cycles ago and describes how Brad Parscale, age 44, 6 feet 8, balding and prolifically bearded, walked on stage to address an audience at a resort hotel down in Coachella Valley and admitted that he was the digital media director for Trump's 2016 campaign. So yes, all that crazy Facebook stuff was my idea, he told the audience. He also had this to say, We have turned the RNC, Republican National Committee, into one of the largest data-gathering operations in United States history. Author Morant notes that at this point, the RNC has raised $263 million for the upcoming 2020 election. The Democratic National Committee has raised just over $100 million. Parscale explained to the audience the Trump campaign has been operating more or less full-time since 2016, continually improving its technology and data operations. During this period, the campaign and the RNC have essentially merged. They share staff, they share voter data, and other resources. The Democrats, who do not yet have a nominee have systems for acquiring and sharing data that are considered outdated by comparison. Said Parscale, you cannot build an app or build out data in the few months you have from the convention. The Democrats will have that problem this time. As they all infight, we are building for our future. Two years ago, as I think we reported on this program at some point, Parscale was named the manager of Trump's 2020 campaign. Before Parscale worked for the campaign, he was a digital marketer in San Antonio, Texas, with no political experience. Referring to his work for Trump in 2016, he said, I was thrown into the Super Bowl, never played a game, and won. But, said Arthur Morantz, it might be more apt to compare Parscale to the technicians who operated Watson, the IBM supercomputer, while it successfully competed against two humans on Jeopardy. Machine learning and social media algorithms are upending most aspects of contemporary life, including politics. One of Parscale's advantages was that he recognized this fact and didn't hesitate to make full use of it. 
The article notes we are now in an era of micro-targeting, which began arguably in 2012, the year of Facebook's IPO. It was then the largest in Silicon Valley's history and will continue inarguably long past 2020. It's no longer good enough to run one radio ad in Scranton and another one in Pittsburgh. These days, campaigns can carve the electorate into creepily thin segments. Say, gold star moms near military bases, or paintball playing widowers in the Florida panhandle, or perhaps recovering addicts in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And for anyone who wants to reach a specific audience with an actionable message, there's never been a platform as potent as Facebook. I understood early that Facebook was how Donald Trump was going to win, Parscale said in October 2017 on 60 Minutes. Facebook was the method. It was the highway which his car drove on. The piece goes on to describe a, uh, a session they had at Harvard's Institute of Politics after the election where they were doing a postmortem on the Clinton and Trump campaigns. It featured leaders of Hillary Clinton's campaign and Trump's campaign, the first public reunion of the now dunces and now geniuses, which is, of course, always the case after election. The losers are the dunces. The winners are the geniuses. Clinton's director of communications, Jennifer Palmieri, said, I'd rather lose than win the way you guys did. Kellyanne Conway responded, no, you wouldn't, respectfully. Later in the discussion, another one of Clinton's advisors uh, repeated Palmieri's rebuke as a backhand compliment. I don't think you guys give yourselves enough credit for the negative campaign you ran, she said, alluding to the fake Facebook stuff or the dark art stuff they were pumping out there. Turning to Parscale, she went on, I'm fascinated to hear all about that because it's so hard for us to track. I agree, said Parscale. That's the beauty of Facebook. Skipping ahead in the piece, they noted that Time's person of the year back in 2010 was Mark Zuckerberg. The accompanying profile on him was mostly adulatory. The piece noted that Facebook, quote, knows exactly who you are and what you're interested in and what you're interested in because you told it. So if Nike wants its ads shown only to people ages 19 to 26 who live in Arizona and like Nickelback, Facebook can make that happen. The article notes Morans did not mention that the same sophisticated targeting tools designed to sort the American population into various micro-demographic segments in order to influence their purchasing decisions could also be used to influence their other behaviors, including the way we vote. The article goes on to describe how Parscale got his start. He was originally contacted by the Trump Organization, Trump International Realty, because they needed a new website, and he was invited to bid on it. Note of the article, he met the main requirement for anyone who wants to win Trump's business. He bid low. As Parscale later told it, Eric Trump, upon receiving his written proposal, called him to say, we think you're missing a zero. We don't know if you're just dumb or you don't know what you're doing. But they hired him and he proved he did know what he was doing. And along the way, mastered the second requirement for anyone who wants to do business with Trump. Obsequious public displays of loyalty. Parscale gushed to reporters about Trump's amazing family and called working for him a great honor. And he got the nod when they needed to build a website for Trump's exploratory campaign committee. Along the way, Parscale got the chance to try and pitch directly to Trump, his uh, suggestion that they spend more money on online advertising. The piece notes that Trump, who adores television and does not seem to know how to use a computer, was dubious. One day in Trump Tower, according to the Washington Post, Trump loudly berated Parscale for wasting millions of dollars on Facebook. Pointing to a nearby television, Trump said, that's how people win elections. Parscale responded, if you're going to be the next president, you're going to win it on Facebook. 
Parscale told 60 Minutes after getting yelled at by Trump, he walked around Midtown for hours thinking about quitting. Eventually, one of Trump's family members called to talk him down, and he decided to stay. After that, the magazine notes Trump either changed his mind or stopped paying attention to Parscale's digital operation, and as it kept growing, the candidate did not stand in his way. Parscale's operation was unofficially called Project Alamo. A rival digital strategist told Morantz, Parscale ran the 2016 digital campaign the way you'd run any other e-commerce operation. He was selling Trump, but he could have been selling sneakers. How did they do this? Well, what's described as standard data science. The same thing Cambridge Analytica did. This was a huge scandal two years ago when it was revealed that Cambridge Analytica had a hand in some of the most misleading political campaigns in recent memory, including Brexit, Uhuru Kenyatta's disinformation-heavy campaign in Kenya, and the despotic propaganda tactics of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. Here's a stat I found rather jaw-dropping from the article. Daniel Kreiss, a political communications professor from the University of North Carolina, told Morantz in 2016 the Trump campaign paid Cambridge Analytica slightly more than $6 million. Parscale's operation, on the other hand, was awarded 15 times that amount, making it one of the most highly paid vendors in political history. One of Parscale's favorite Facebook marketing tools was called Lookalike Audiences. The tool works like this. An advertiser uploads a custom list, an Excel spreadsheet of people the advertiser wants to target, even if the spreadsheet comprises only scraps of information. An email address here, a mobile advertising ID there. Facebook, with its unparalleled accretion of consumer data, can usually fill in the gaps. Lookalike audiences then multiplies the power of custom lists, including Facebook's proprietary software, to replicate the target audience. Parscale told Frontline, if you have a custom list of 300,000 people, you can use lookalike audience to find another 300,000 Facebook users with similar attributes to those in the first group. One of the most difficult tasks of a political campaign is distinguishing likely supporters from the undifferentiated mass of the American electorate. That can now be accomplished instantly through artificial intelligence. When Frontline asked how accurate lookalike audiences was, Parscale called it pretty amazing. And that's when this micro-targeting really came to the fore. The article notes that in the past, thinking when a campaign that chose to run a racist ad would at least suffer blowback from the many non-racists who saw it. In an era of micro-targeting, when a racist ad could be served only to people whose online behavior, whose online behavior demonstrated a proclivity toward racism, that check was gone. Two reporters from Bloomberg Businessweek visited Project Alamo shortly before the 2016 election. In their piece, the reporters quoted a senior official within the campaign as saying, we have three major voter suppression operations underway. The targets of those operations were said to be idealistic white liberals, young women, and African Americans. And the article points out that the term voter suppression certainly can apply to traditional negative advertising intended to dampen enthusiasm for an opponent and notes that Trump's use of such negative campaigning, enhanced by the latest in targeting technology, seems to have helped. If African-American turnout in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin had been as high as it was in 2008, Clinton might have won. And when it came to spending money, Trump seemed to have gotten a lot of value. Clinton's campaign had a budget of more than a billion dollars. A significant chunk was spent on TV ads. Trump had 30% less, but he invested more money in Facebook. 
They cost him much less on average thanks to the platform's instant auction system, which rewards viral success. But they note of all the benefits the Trump campaign reaped from social media, surely the most potent came from the form of free human labor. Parscale told, Parscale told Frontline, I asked Facebook, Parscale told Frontline, I said to Facebook, I want to spend $100 million on your platform. Send me a manual. They said, we don't have a manual. I said, well, send me a human manual. In June of 2016, Facebook dispatched what is often called an embed. He was a young man from its ad sales department who had previously worked for several Republican-affiliated causes. A former Facebook sales rep told the author, on the commercial side, all big accounts get reps like this. It's standard. Coca-Cola gets a Facebook rep working on commission whose job is to advocate for Coca-Cola within Facebook and vice versa. According to people who were working for Project Alamo, Parscale made it was clear that he distrusted these reps from Facebook and Google, whose bosses presumably wanted Trump to lose. Shortly thereafter, the Facebook embed demonstrated his value. He designed a custom list of everyone who interacted with one of Trump's Facebook pages during the primaries and sent those people targeted ads. The ads cost 300000 They raised $1.3 million, a gain of $1 million in a single day. The embed was 28-year-old James Barnes from Tennessee. The day after Trump's victory, Gary Colby, the campaign's digital advertising director, tagged Barnes in a tweet calling him the MVP of the campaign. Barnes told Morantz that although he grew up in an evangelical family and long considered himself a Republican, I despised Donald Trump from the moment I knew anything about him. On November 8, 2016, after spending months working overtime to help Trump win, he and a few Facebook colleagues went to the polls and cast ballots for Hillary Clinton. My attitude during the entire campaign was, I'm a professional, I'm here to do a job, my personal preferences are irrelevant. Last year, after reflecting on a lot of things, including my personal sense of duty, he said he quit Facebook. Peace also notes that in 2016, while Trump was accepting help from Facebook, Google, and Twitter, Hillary Clinton was offered equivalent services, but her campaign turned them down. In my experience, the reps don't add all that much, a Democratic digital strategist told me. They may be lovely people, but their job is to sell ads on the platform, and it's sometimes too many cooks in the kitchen. I know there's plenty more to this article. I'm going to stop right here because it's pretty clear that despite uh, the disclaimers by Facebook that they had a lot to do with what happened in 2016, they sure as heck did. And despite these headlines about how Facebook is reaching in to apparently stop some of the more misleading advertising by Trump's people, all I've got to say is look out. Mr. Mullen says I have one minute left, so I'm going to add this. A former Facebook employee told Morantz that after the 2016 election, there was some internal chatter about drafting a case study that would demonstrate in great detail how Facebook had been a decisive factor in Trump's victory. It would have been one of the most extensive and convincing one on the whole site, the person told me. The evidence was overwhelming, but given the mood at the time, there was no way we were going to put that out there. There are a couple of Democrats out there that get it on this issue. Both Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg were aware of what needed to be done. And according to the article, Bloomberg is currently building a digital operation that could come to rival Parscale's. Mike Bloomberg has said he's in this thing through November. Everyone he's hired still has a job until then, and he's committed to removing Trump from office. So I guess it's fair to say that even though we closed last week's program, noting that the, the race seemed to come down to three important people, Biden, Sanders, and Bloomberg, well, that may still be true. One of the operations that may be of value in all this is one called Acronym. Tara McGowan of Acronym told Morantz, It's lovely that Democratic campaigns are so principled. I mean that sincerely. And yet, 
It also scares the hell out of me because the other side isn't playing by the same rules. And our principles might make it all but impossible for us to regain power. Let's take a much-needed break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stick around.